You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. If you haven't gone to John 13, that's where we're going to be. So you can get a Bible or your phone out. That's where we're going to be in John 13, verse 31 down to the end of 38, which is uh, uh, 13, which is verse 38. As I've said to you before, I'm not a big um, TV series person. My, my brothers and sisters-in-law, they, they're all kind of up on all of the new TV series. And then they'll be like, did you see this? And no, I've, no, I've never even heard of this before. It's kind of nice not even knowing what a commercial is anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't get the commercials. So... Uh, Basically, it's YouTube of people doing adventurous things like climbing mountains or football. That's basically TV for me. And uh, many documentaries I've seen of those who have attempted or have climbed to the pinnacle of Mount Everest. And there's so much. By the way, you have to be basically rich to, to get to the top of Mount Everest. It costs thousands upon thousands of dollars for them to take you up there, of course. Uh, and there's a good chance that you're not going to make it, that you're going to die at the top. In fact, there's a, how many little kids are in the room? There's a spot in, in Everest near the top called the death zone, where basically you are stepping over people that have tried to make it, but didn't quite make it. Uh, called the death zone and, and one, one, there's a famous quote that someone said I don't know if they put a sign up or just you know uh, just it, basically there's a famous quote of, of, of describing this death zone because everyone who tries to go to Everest they do all of their they do all of their training they've got to kind of go a little bit up and then a little bit down and, and they, they have to you know make enough money to, to be there and they plan out the route in, in, a, in a warm room like they can visualize the hike in a, in a warm room and think, okay, yeah, we're going to do it. We, we, I'm, I'm, my body is ready. I'm confident that I can do this. And there's a famous quote that someone said about the death zone in Everest, which is, here lies a very motivated, confident person. But they didn't make it. I think the same can be said for us. We, we tend to visualize or, or think, you know, like all the planning, it, it happens in a very warm room. But in the actual field of battle, in the field of life, our confidence is shattered when, when the realities of life come against us. That maybe no more true than in our concept and experience of love. Most of us would say that we love, but when the realities of life come against us, whether that love holds up or not under the pressure remains to be seen. In many weddings, you could probably say, here stand a very motivated and confident person. Right? There's lots of debate in our day and age about the experience and concept of love. What is it? There's many books, articles, and even social realities and battles that are, that are being fought about the concept and experience of love. And what I do believe is completely true is that we can have a very misguided notion of what love in fact is. As Jesus, uh, Jesus, Nikki read, <laughs> but Jesus said it, so Nikki read it, Jesus said it, uh, verse 36 to 38, when Jesus says to his 
disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Peter, what does Peter say to that? Lord, I'll, I'll give my life for you, no problem. Very confident about it. I don't think Peter was trying to be deceptive. or ins- I think he really believed he, he could give his life for Jesus. That was his concept of love. I think he really believed that I will give my life for Jesus in that moment. He really believed that his love and devotion to Jesus will stand against the pressure of life. What is very true about love, he makes this great declaration. Here's a spoiler alert. Maybe if you've never read John before, it doesn't take too much. It just takes a couple of chapters to to realize that, that Peter doesn't go through with this declaration. He fails miserably and denies Jesus three times, one of those times being to a very little girl. So he has this grand declaration that I will love you, Jesus. I love you. Nothing can shatter that, and it's shattered by a little girl. What is true about love? Love is not static. It's not the question like, do you love me or do you not love me? I don't think that's how love works. It's not like you can just turn a switch. Boom, I don't love you and now I do. Right? I can declare my love to you. It's not a switch that you can just turn on. Love must grow. When you first declared love, come on, be honest with me. Did you have any idea what you were, you were actually saying? Right? Anyone? Did you have any idea what you were saying when you first declared your love to somebody? I don't care if it was like in a romantic sense or in a friend sense. Did you have any idea what that would really mean? Because Peter didn't. You know, he could say very confidently, I love you, Jesus, in a warm room, surrounded by friends, in the safety of of a table and food. No one else is going to disagree with this. But as soon as he enters into a cold, dark, dangerous night, his concept of love was very different. It didn't hold up. Anyone else with me? When you first declared love, did you have any idea what you were saying? When I first declared love... It was on the beach of Erio near Chatham, okay? Nikki and I are sitting on a beach in Erio, and I was a coward, and Nikki declared her love to me first. Oh, yeah, your parents are in the room. Shoot. That's fine. That's okay. There's one, yeah, what did, I, I don't know what I'm about to say that's going to be, well, anyway. Beach in Erio, and I first declared love. <laughs> I first said, I love you. I was in high school. This is maybe an admission I've never said before. I had no idea what I was saying. I had no idea what I was saying. All I was thinking about was that maybe she'll kiss me now. That's all I, had to, that's all I could think of. And she did. So, <laughs> hey, you know, who's going to complain about that? So, uh, <laughs> that's what my love meant at that time. What is true, and I don't think... When you first declare love, you're trying to be deceptive or insincere. It's just love has to grow. It's not this switch that's like, now I love you, and I'll do anything for you. Love has to grow. We all have a misunderstood experience of love, and then therefore the concept of what we believe love actually is. Even if you've grown up in the church, we all have to admit that likely our view of love is pretty immature until you go through the pressures of life. 
Now, don't be wrong. I'm not saying that to demean you at all or to question you. I mean, I'm saying this to myself just as much as you. My point is that love is not a switch you just turn on. Here's the light bulb. Love is more like the rising of the sun in the horizon that as soon as it breaks that line, you can start to see the evidences of it. It shines its way through every area of, of the scene. All of a sudden, now you've got the pinks and purples on the trees, and the light starts to illuminate, and then the sun keeps coming up. That's kind of like when people stand together. They, uh, even as they join a church and they express love to their fellow brothers and sisters or those who are standing before an altar to declaring their love that they're going to spend the rest of their lives. It's like the sun just appearing over the horizon. You think, can it get any better than this? Yes, the, lo- the sun keeps rising and rising and rising until it keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. That's the concept of love. It has to grow. Many people have said, you know, I grew out of love. That's not true. Your love just never grew. Peter's concept of love worked in a warm, safe room surrounded by food and friends. I mean, whose concept of love wouldn't work in that scene? But as soon as you go out into a dangerous, dark, cold night, his concept of love fell apart in the cold. And they sit around a table. That's where we are. So they sit around a table. Judas has just left, meaning that there was nothing left between the present and the destiny of Jesus. He knew where he had to go, and that's why he says to his disciples, I am leaving you. I'm leaving you. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. In verse 33, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. I am leaving you, and I love this because he starts off like, there's something you got to know, though, before I leave. There's something you need to know before I leave. And here it is. In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how your love grows. This is the basis of the church. This is what would mark Christian community. I love as Jesus leaves. Like this is as you continue on. This is what's going to mark Christian community. It's your love for one another. Now, some commentators, if you read through the passage, some commentators balk at the idea that Jesus doesn't include the world, but simply, specifically, talks about the Christian community. Now. I think he covers the world in many other areas. If you go through Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, he love your enemies uh, and, and pray for your enemies, all those, those kind of things. He includes the world in those things. But specifically, I want to focus on love for the Christian community here because I think in, in sometimes this might be a bigger rebuke for, for you than just to say to love the world, but you're to love the specific people that you're sitting beside or maybe that you don't want to sit beside across the room that you purposely didn't sit beside. Love for your Christmas, Christian community Here's the first thing, how your love grows. Love for your Christ community impels your love for the world. You might be feeling the burn of, oh, Aaron, like, I'll love the world, no problem. I love all people, but I just don't, like the, I just don't want to love the person that I don't like in my church. But love for your Christ community impels love for the world. Jesus, he's really saying is you can't really love as Jesus loves if you don't love the church. You probably, you may struggle because of things that have happened to you, your experience of church, you may struggle with loving Christians specifically. I get it. Once you start to have life-on-life community, stuff starts to happen, right? 
All of a sudden, they're not as loving as you thought they were. Problems start happening. I think we get this misconcept that that it's going to be easier the closer we are as a church. No, that's when problems start happening. If you want a no-problem church, just be as far away from each other as possible. But if we want to commit to closeness in Restoration Church, as leaders, you know this, we're committing ourselves to closeness as a church, which means there's going to be problems. That's what happens when you get close to people. Life-on-life community is hard. There's going to be problems that happen. In fact, if there's no problems that happen in the church, maybe you're not close enough as a church. You're just kind of doing the, 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 the things, the rhythms of church, and you're not actually living life on life beside each other. It's very hard to live life on life, discipleship with each other. That's when you start to have problems. Iron sharpening iron is a great proverb, and it's inspiring, but it's full of sparks and friction and pain. That's iron sharpening iron. A lot of sparks. (laughs) It's hard. But the point is, if you love your church and commit to loving your church, your love will grow and it impels you to love the world as well. Because the question you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, is do I love selfish people? Do I love self-righteous people? Do I love proud people? People I disagree with? Jesus called those people out. We always pick on Pharisees. Jesus called the religious people out, but he loved them. He loved even the Pharisees. That he would sit at the Pharisee's table. He didn't, this is too self-righteous for me. He loved religious people. Aaron, it's really hard to love those people. I get it. I say this humbly though, sometimes it's really hard to love me. Okay? I get it, it's hard to love those people. But I also say this humbly to you, it's really hard sometimes to love me too. But people in this church do. I want to honor some people just before I go on. We've been in church for four and a half years. There's some people that probably found me incredibly difficult to love, and yet you did anyway. Okay? I can't remember who's been with us since the beginning. Like Sam, Laura, uh, Landon, you haven't been with us from the beginning. No, you haven't. No. I won't honor you this morning. Okay? I won't honor you. Okay? Uh, Ruth and Colin. Ryan and Sarah. That might be it. I think that might be it. I want to honor those people because there's, there's been times that I probably was not easy to love. And yet you did anyway. And your love grew because of it. I won't put it on the other shoe. On the other, the, other, the other scenario, which is sometimes maybe you are difficult to love too. But I won't say that. I want to honor that. I, there was a time early on in this church plant when I was, I was not leading well. I was tired and frustrated and, to be honest, a little bit too concerned with myself. I needed someone who was older and wiser to simply encourage me and to believe in me. And that was Colin. From the beginning. And uh, I honestly can say, if I didn't experience Colin's love, I don't think I would be doing this. And he knows that. There were some hard moments. Colin knows this too, though. There's also been moments between Colin and myself 
when you sit across the table and you know you disagree on something. It's kind of awkward in those moments. It's like, wait, we don't, usually we're on the same page, but we are not on the same page on this. And then you kind of, there's this awkward silence of, of uh, who's going to cave to the other one. There's been moments. That doesn't mean you don't love each other. In fact, though, you need those moments to, for your love to grow. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's love for the Christian community. You need it. If you don't love the church, you probably need to grow in, under, in understanding what love is entirely, at least the, the love that Jesus displays. And you're at risk of thinking love is just simply fate. I have favor for those I agree with that share my opinion. And that's then, therefore, how I interact with the world around me. You say you love the world, but the reality is you only love parts of it. In such a frustrated, divided world, I think that's how most people love. I love the world, but not the people that I don't like. Does your heart break for those who annoy you, frustrate you, or you may not even agree with? Would you wash Peter, the denier's feet? Would you wash Judas, the betrayer's feet? Love for the Christ community impels your love for the world. It's how your love grows. There's an even better reason, though, to love one another that's found in this passage. Look in verse 35. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also to love one another. Verse 35 says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, but it's their love that carries on that's going to prove my presence was among you. As a church, our defining characteristic before the world is the measure of love that we have toward one another. Love is the Christian ethic. 1 Corinthians 13 is fascinating. You can look at it after, but basically says this. Our action of love as a church is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It says you can speak in the tongues of men or angel and not have love. It won't mean that you're just a resounding gong. You could speak angel. I don't even know what that means. You could speak angel as a church. But if you don't love, it's an annoying, it's an annoying bell. It says you could prophesy, but if without love, it's for nothing. You could preach A-plus sermons, but if they're void of love as a church, it doesn't mean anything. It even says you could give your life for Jesus. You could lay down your life for Jesus, but without love, it doesn't mean anything. Love is our defining Christian ethic, and without it, the world will see something from us, but it won't be Jesus. Man, God forgive us, especially in the last three years. God forgive us for fear of a different opinion, for pride in sometimes our own orthodoxy that has caused hatred amongst the church. Because if we don't have love, the world sees something, but they won't see Jesus. That's the truth. In the manner of our love, could we say as a church... 
The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. Would the world say, yeah, that church, that's where God, God's love exists? There's a book written a long time ago in the early church called Second Clement, and it says one of the quotes from it says, the failure to love one another as a church, the failure to love one another, it, it, it's not just a failure. It says it bla- the quote is, it blasphemes the name of God. It blasphemes the name of God because through specifically our love, it's the expression of God himself. And if we do not show real love, we are giving a false version of who God really is. We blaspheme the name of God. As a church, without love, we see kids' ministry, but we won't see God. Without love, we might host gatherings and family reunions, but we won't see God. We may hear sermons, but we won't hear from God. What I'm talking about is a word called glory. Glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. You know, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, all the angels are flying around. I don't know what the scene was like. It's very cryptic. But it's this crazy scene. But the angels are saying, do you know what they're saying in Isaiah 6? Remember what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what the meaning is, holiness, I think Colin has said this before, holiness is not, it's not really an attribute of God. Holiness is just what makes God God. Like all the other attributes, that's holiness. It's what is specifically divine. That is what holiness means. It's what is specifically God. It's who he is. And so when Isaiah 6 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, later on, the same angels say the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is that what is holy that you can sense, you can see it, you can taste it, you can feel it in the room that is That is specifically divine. It's what only God can do. A couple chapters before when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, you're going to see the glory of God. Because it's only God who can do this thing. It's only the holiness of God that you are going to see as Lazarus walks out from this tomb. That's glory. No human can do that thing. Only God can do it. That's what we call glory. And as a church, we can't conjure that. You know, we say, show us your glory, God, but we can't conjure it because it's not something we can do. It's only something that God himself can do. Glory is a work of God. I think glory is this thing that we hunger for. We're, we're in football playoffs right now, and for the next few weeks, you're going to hear the word glory dropped in by athletes. Be like, we want to experience glory by winning the Super Bowl. I'm telling you this, even as a big football fan, the chase for the Super Bowl is always more satisfying than the actual Super Bowl. It's always more fun than the actual Super It's like they win it, and then everyone's like, who's, who's going to win it next year? You know what I mean? It's like the actual attainment is never as satisfying as the chase, because I think we hunger for something we can't get to ourselves. Glory is only possible by God coming to us. It's not something we can do. We can't conjure it. In fact, Jackie Hill Perry... Jackie Hill Perry said this, I don't know if it was this week, I just saw a clip of her sharing, is as a church, if we are not in simple worship praying and depending on God to bring glory to us, what tends to happen, churches can almost like you go to some form of witchcraft, trying to conjure magic, conjure the supernatural, and yet the supernatural isn't even there. 
Because we can't do, we can't make glory happen. It's only by God. We cannot reach it. True love, this is the point, true love, real love that we long for is glory. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, there really wasn't anything new about love. Like in Old Testament, they talked about love. Love, love God, love your neighbor. That's in, the new, that's in the Old Testament. So there's nothing new about love. What was new was now I'm going to give you an example, a glorious example of what that love now looks like. It's going to be new. Verse 31 and 32 says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's very strange language. It seems to repeat itself, especially when you translate it to English. But basically, it's very simple in that the Father is going to glorify Jesus, and Jesus is then going to glorify the Father. They're going to show the world and do what only they could do, which was the cross. Why are you leaving, Jesus? I have to. We'll come with you. You can't. You can't do this. Only I can. That's glory. Only I can do this. This great display of glory that's fulfilled in the cross. That place of shame and disgrace became the supreme expression of love for the world. Where God fully accommodates himself to creation and where light fully overcomes the darkness, this is where we look for love. We don't look at Hallmark movies. We don't look at the latest book. We don't even really look at a church for our main inspiration. Where do we look? The cross. That's where we draw our inspiration and concept of what true love looks like. It's the cross. It's also where we draw our strength from. You know, it's really hard to love the way Jesus loved if you don't have confidence that you are loved in the same way. In fact, it's almost impossible. It's basically impossible to love yourself to that end without the confidence that you are also loved in the same way. See, when Jesus is saying, love one another just as I have loved you, he's not just saying, do better, church. Get your act together and love. We can't even do that unless we look at the cross. Say, I am loved more than I can even comprehend. And it is that truth that I draw my strength to love others in the same way from. That's the real love story. Jesus, where are you going? Why are you leaving us? I have to, my child. I have to. Because my love is not going to be displayed in a warm room surrounded by friends and family and food. It's not going to be displayed in the bubble of safety. My love is ultimately going to be displayed 
as a man walks out of that room into the cold, into a dark, dangerous night, to walk carrying the burdens of the world upon himself, feeling the pain of wood and metal against and inside of his skin, and finally breathing his last to save another. And it was done all for love. That's my confidence. That's my inspiration. As one hymn writer saying, that's my story and that's my song. That's the real story of love. God, thank you so much for your word that you've called us to love one another. I, I don't think you're coming down on us here, God, when we have to humbly say that our love and experience of love is, still has to grow. That's just true. My love still has to grow. And the only way that that happens is as I gaze upon the cross. Lord, may the world, when they see Restoration Church, that they would see love. Painful love. Cold, dark night type of love. That loves even within all of the pressures and realities of life. Even when we don't feel like loving, Lord, may the world see that love. That they would know that Jesus is here. Jesus is here. We want to see Jesus. Lord, there are likely some in the room now who either need to come once again before the cross or are resisting that message. Aaron, I I just don't want to love those people. Lord, maybe today is a day when we need to bow our knee and once again look upon the bleeding body of Jesus to find our inspiration and to find our strength. Maybe there are grudges, unforgiveness, things that need to be offered now in order for us to grow in our love that we are holding back. Today is the day. I pray for this in your name.